You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. semester, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parables of Jesus. As many of you probably know, parables are these little stories that Jesus told. And the reason why he told these little stories was primarily, uh, they're primarily designed to frustrate you. Because he looks at religious people that are devoted and he says, you have no clue what God is really like. And he looks at irreligious people that have rejected God and he says, you have rejected a counterfeit version of God. (laughs) The parables are intended to show you that every thought that the human race has ever had about God has been wrong. So my hope and prayer is that you get frustrated. Because when you get frustrated, you actually are forced to come to terms with who God might actually be. So, with that in mind, let me just begin by reading. We're going to look at this first parable tonight from Luke 15. It may be uh, familiar to some of you. It at least may kind of ring ring a bell to others. But I'm just going to read um, the first part of this parable from Matthew 15. It goes like this. And he, that's Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let me pray and then we'll consider it together. Father, thank you for this chance to be together, the the chance to start a new semester, a chance to meet and connect with new people. And for many of us, I feel like just kind of a chance to start over. Uh, I know a lot of different folks in this room feel a lot of different things. Some of us are really excited to be on campus, really excited to be at RUF and meet new people and connect. And others of us are not so sure. 
Some of us in this room feel really out of place and really disoriented and lonely. Some of us in this room are just so angry and frustrated with their family, with their roommate, with just their life. Some of us in this room just feel overwhelmed with guilt and shame and are already just filled with so much regret over bad decisions they've already made. Father, regardless of what we feel and where we find ourselves, I pray that you'd connect with each one of us tonight and show us who you really are, that you are a God that, even as we sing about earlier, a God whose love will not let us go. Pray that that would mean something to us as a result of our, of our being together tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my um, best friends, is a name, his name is Brent Corbin. He's the RUF campus minister at the University of Tulsa. I went to seminary with him, and one day when he was uh, at home by himself, his wife was working or something, he was in the backyard working on his garden because he does that sort of thing. And he's, his backyard's kind of cool. It's private because it's enclosed by these three, it's hedged in by these three like big bushes things. So nobody from the other yard can see his backyard. He's out there watering flowers or whatever. And so he decides it's time to clean up and go inside and take a shower. So he goes inside, gets naked, because that's what you do before you take a shower, turns on the water, but he notices that the water pressure is kind of low which makes him realize, oh, I've left the hose on in the backyard. So he goes to the backyard naked, opens the door, closes the door, goes, turns the thing, turns around to go back inside and realizes, locked. (laughs) So my idiot friend has now locked himself outside of his own house naked and no one's inside. Panic sets in, so... He scrambles to think about what to do. So there's a, he has this little tool shed in his backyard. He runs to the tool shed, finding, trying to find something to cover himself with, an old rag. Maybe there's some gym shorts stuff somewhere in there. Nothing. <laughs> Only thing he could find was a little bit of strip of, uh, like, painter's tarp, which is kind of see-through, not, you know, some, you know, like plasticky kind of stuff. So he begins to wrap it around his bathing suit area. And um, he's effectively made himself a diaper. And he waddles to, to the side of his house because now he's got another problem. His, his house was on a, a somewhat of a busy street. Cars drove by a lot. There were a lot of elderly people in his neighborhood that took walks in front of his house a good bit. So now he has to mission impossible it to the front of the house to figure out when he can make a break for it. And sure enough, elderly people walk by no cars, and he scurries and scampers to the front, and thankfully, front door's open, and he gets inside. Now, I want you to think about what did he feel while he was outside by himself naked? My guess is he felt very vulnerable. He felt alone. He felt a sense of panic, and his deepest desire was just to get home, just to get back in his house, right? The reason I kind of begin that way is because I'm going to suggest that that feeling everybody in this room is familiar with. And my guess is a lot of you have felt that acutely this first week or so of school, where you felt vulnerable, you felt exposed, you felt alone, and all you want to do is get home. Some of you um, have literally felt homesick 
where you feel like my friends and my family are not here. This is not home. Home is there. And you feel disoriented. You feel alone. You feel exposed. And all you want to do is get home to safety, to comfort. Uh, some of you felt this when you went through uh, recruitment. That feeling of, I'm just, I'm longing for a home. That was the question you were asking when you went to house, to house, to house, and met all these different people. It's, who are these people? Will I fit in? Do I belong? Will this place be a home for me? That's what you're asking. Will this, will this group be a home for me? That's what some of you are asking tonight. The reason you're here, your campus ministry shopping, church shopping, we be shopping, whatever. The reason why you're shopping is you're testing the water and you're trying to feel out, do I like this group? Is this RUF group kind of something I want to be a part of? Do I like these people? Do I fit in? Is this a place where I can see that I belong? You're asking the question, can I find a home here? And uh, you've definitely probably felt this this past weekend, as I'm guessing you will feel in weekends to come, of what am I going to do on the weekend? What's everybody doing? And who is the everybody in that sentence? What are they doing? And should I go do that? Because if I do that, that means I'm going to miss out on what these people are doing. What am I going to do on game day weekends? Where am I going to sit? Am I going to tailgate? Where are people tailgating? Who do I tailgate with? Where do I sit once I get into the stadium? That's you asking these questions. I want a home. I want a group of people where I can belong and feel safety and feel life in. And every one of us is asking that question, how can I find a home? And we don't quite know how to find it. And it's into that fundamental human need that Jesus tells this story. He's going to show us that we're all looking for a home and we're all lost and trying to figure out where it is. So there's three ideas that I want to show you from this story of what Jesus is up to here. He's going to show us how we get lost, how we get confused, and then how we get home. Those are the three big ideas I want to explore with you tonight. How we get lost, how we get confused, and then how we actually get home. So there you go. First, how do we get lost? Well, look at the story. In verse 11, we discover early on that this man, this father, he has two sons. And each son is going to represent a different strategy of trying to find a home. We're going to look at the younger son tonight, and we're going to return to this story again next week and look at the older son. But if you want to know what the younger son thinks about where home is, here it is. It's very simple. He thinks that home is going to be found away from his father. That's it. Home is found away from his father. Look at verse 12. I'll read it again to you. It says, And the younger of them, the younger of the two kids, said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that's coming to me. He's essentially saying this. Hey, Dad, you know when you die and I'm a part of your will and I'm going to inherit some of your stuff? Yeah, I want some of that now. And what he's essentially saying is... I wish that you were dead now so that I can get what's coming to me later now. He thinks, all he wants is the father's stuff. He doesn't want the father. He is saying, essentially, uh, I'm kind of done with this father-son thing, but if you want to give me my cut of your bank account and we can kind of be done with all this, that's great. Because that's what he does. As soon as he gets his money, as you see this in verse 13, he leaves home and goes to a far-off country. Once he has what he wants out of this relationship, he's done. He pieces out. What does he believe? He believes that home is found away from his father, where he can do whatever he wants uh, without anybody telling him what to do. Uh, he's free. He thinks about freedom the way that Queen Elsa 
from Frozen thinks about freedom. You know the song Let It Go. You've heard it once or twice before. The line goes, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. (laughs) That's what she thinks. That's what he thinks. Freedom is found away from my father. And here's what Jesus is up to in this part of the story. He's challenging the way that we think about what sin is. When Christians use that word sin, most people think that you're talking about bad behaviors. And Jesus is saying sin is much bigger and deeper and complex than just breaking rules. Jesus is way more sophisticated and nuanced when he uses that word. Sin is, as he is saying, that instinct in your heart to find a home apart from God your Father. That's what sin is. It's that instinct. It's much more deeper. It's much more subtle. It's trying to find a home in anything else other than God. And by the way, as you know from this younger son, um, that road always, always, always leads to a dead end. Look at what happens to this kid. He, uh, off he goes with truckloads of cash. He lives this wildly crazy fun life, parties and food and alcohol and sex, and he's just living it up, but the money runs out, and where does he find himself? Broke and broken. He's feeding pigs. He's bottomed out. His life has unraveled, and he is lost. Which is to say he feels alienated, he feels hurt, he feels unknown. He doesn't have a home. Trying to find a home apart from your father always leaves you lost. Now, some of you are thinking, um, okay, I don't know if I'm buying into that. Let let me try to prove to you that this is the case. That sin is much more subtle and tricky and sophisticated than just cheating is a sin. And drinking underage is a sin. Or getting trashed or having sex outside of marriage is a sin. Like, that's how we typically think about sins. Jesus is saying it's much more complex. Some of you are trying to find a home in your success. That doesn't seem sinful. You want to be successful. You want to have a good GPA. You want to find a home in your identity and safety and life in being successful. Okay? Well, consider Boris Becker for a second. Boris Becker, famous tennis player, won three national uh, Grand Slam titles. And after he wins these three Grand Slam titles, the, the reporters stick a camera in his face and a microphone to his mouth, and they say, Boris Becker, you've just won your third Grand Slam title. What is going to be your greatest challenge now? And this star athlete who's successful at the top of his game looks them in the face and says this trying to find a reason not to kill myself. He had success, everything ever wanted, thought it would be home, ends up lost. John D. Rockefeller, you know that name because he's like the famous bazillionaire, is this famous building named after him in New York City after the show 30 Rock was kind of named from? Anyway, John D. Rockefeller was once asked, what's the one thing you wish you knew before you got started? And his answer was this, I wish someone had told me that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. So that's him saying I'm lost. I have everything. I'm successful. I'm lost. Okay? Some of you, you don't care necessarily about success. For you, it's just having a good career. Like, I just want to be in in, in a, a career where I can make money, where I can be influential. That's not sinful, is it? But if you look for a home there, what happens? Uh, Well, you need to consider Tom Brady for a second. 
Tom Brady, as you know, famous uh, Patriots quarterback. By age 30, he had three Super Bowl rings. Handsome celebrity dude, could have any woman that he wanted. And in this really famous interview in 2020 a few years ago, probably some of y'all have seen this probably on the YouTubes, here's what he said. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, and me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. That's a good career. You're an athlete. You're a celebrity. You have money. You can do whatever you want. And he says, I feel lost. I feel lost. Jim Carrey said the same thing. He said, uh, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Okay, let's say for you, home is not necessarily career or success or money or influence. Let's say for you, your, the home that you're looking for is the same home that I struggle with looking for. is just having people like you. Having the approval of everybody. The applause of people. Well, let's talk about Lady Gaga for a second. <laughs> There's this amazing clip um, from old Lady Gaga. Again, you can find it on the YouTubes. Where she is backstage before a giant show at Madison Square Garden. She's getting her makeup done and she's weeping. And you know what she says? It's It's so poignant to me. She says this. I just sometimes feel like a loser still, you know? It's crazy because, like, we're at the garden, but I still sometimes feel like that loser kid in high school, and I just got to pick my ish up, pick myself up, and I have to tell myself I'm a superstar every morning so I can get through this day. You know what she's saying? I searched for a home in the applause and the fans and in the stardom, and it's left me lost. I still feel like a loser. I still feel like nobody likes me. It's not a home. Look, I can go on and on and on with examples all night long, but you get the point. If you try to build your home on your beauty and on your physical appearance, you'll always feel ugly. You try to find a home in uh, being smart, you'll always feel dumb. You're trying to find a home in relationships, you'll always feel disappointed. You try to build a home and find a home in the party scene, you're always going to feel empty. They're all spiritual dead ends. That's what Jesus is showing us. You, you know the irony, by the way, of... Queen Elsa song, Let It Go. She's singing this song, Let It Go. I'm free, I'm free, no rules, no rights, while she's building her own ice prison. Isolated, away from everyone, that's not freedom. She's lost. She's lost. And Jesus is showing us, this is how we get lost. We look for homes and security and life apart from God. But, second, how do we get confused? A lot of us are lost, and we know we're lost, but we don't really know which, which way to go. We don't know any alternative. And this is where we get confused. And so Jesus shows us that by verse 17. It says that this guy came to himself, which means that he kind of came to his senses. The lights came on, and he had this moment of clarity where he realizes, dude, I don't even know where I am anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore. I've done things I never thought I would do. I've bottomed out, and maybe there are answers with my father But there's a big problem because the father knows how much he's screwed up. So he devises this plan that you see played out in the story. He drafts up this apology speech and he thinks, if I can just go home and grovel before my father and tell him I'm such a mess, I've sinned against you, I've screwed it up, will you please just hire me as one of your servants? And what he's basically asking is for an opportunity to pay off all that money that he just blew. 
will you hire me back? I know I'm not good enough to be family anymore, but maybe I can pay you back. And this reminds me of the show, um, My Name is Earl. I, I never watched the show, but I caught one episode, and it was enough to convince me I didn't need to watch anymore. But if you're familiar with the premise of the show, it's about this petty criminal whose name is Earl. And he's scammed, and he's cheated all of these different people, and he gets in this car accident, and he has this awakening uh, epiphany moment in, in the hospital where he realizes, man, I've screwed all these people. I need to make that right. And so each episode is him just working down the list of all these different people that he's cheated and he's trying to make it right. In other words, he looks at all of his crimes and he says, I'm going to make atonement for all of that. And Earl thinks about God the same way that this younger kid does, and this is the same way that we think about it, which means that we're confused. The idea here is that I can pay my way back into your good graces. And a lot of people think this is what Christianity is. Some of you here tonight probably think, yeah, that's what I'm doing as a Christian. If I can paint a picture for you, some of you think that the Christian life goes like this. You're going about your day, you're doing your thing, you're living your life, and then somewhere along the way you screw up. You sin, you blow it. Maybe you go hear a speaker or something and you get convicted in a sermon and you have all this guilt. And then what you do with that guilt is you just take it and you beat the crap out of yourself. And you wallow in your guilt and you think, uh, there's no way that I can come to God right now. I can't pray. I can't go to church. I can't read the Bible. I've got to allow enough time to pass before I can come back to God because I've got to, I've got to earn my way in. I've got to show him that this really matters to me. And so you think, if I just feel bad enough, long enough, then that will show him that I'm worthy. And then when you get finally back into his presence, you do what this younger kid did, which is you start making these promises and you start making these deals, right? God, if you just forgive me for that thing that I did, I promise, 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 I'll never, ever do it again. Promise. And I will start going to church regularly. And I'll start reading my Bible and I'll get involved in RUF or whatever. Like, I'm, I'm really going really to do it this time. And you grovel before him and... That only leads to one of two responses. Response number one is you just punt the faith. Where you think, that is so guilt-ridden and miserable, I want nothing to do with that. And so you just kind of walk away from God, the church, altogether. In fact, that may be where some of you are here tonight. You're like, I don't believe any of this crap. I'm just here to meet cute girls. I'm just here to talk to cute guys. I don't believe any of this stuff. Or, some of you, the other response, instead of just punting the faith, the other response is burnout. Where obeying God feels like a heavy burden. I've got to read the Bible. I've got to be in a Bible study. I've got to be a young life leader. I've got to come to RUF because I feel like I have to. And you are miserable, but you don't feel like you have any other option. You're spiritually empty. And here's how we get confused. Because we get lost... And the way we think the way out of that is through shame and self-atonement. And that's not Christianity. A lot of you think that you're Christians and you're not. You're just confused on who God is and what he's all about. So who is God then and what's he all about? Well, 
let's look at this last idea, how we actually get home. That's how we get lost. That's how we get confused. How do we get out of this? How do we get home? Well, look back at the younger son. He starts heading back home, and he's got this speech memorized, and he's got this plan to work off his debt. Now, you've got to realize, in this culture, he's probably responsible for liquidating about a third of his family's estate and income and land, which in this culture, which was a shame-honor culture, was a, is an enormous disgrace to his family. This land took generations to get, and he had him sell it off so that he could get his money. And so when he comes back through the main street of his village covered in pig filth, it would not have been uncommon for a mob to form in this village to taunt him, to mock him, to beat him up, possibly even to kill him. It would not have been uncommon for the older brother or the father to run towards this kid and verbally or physically assault him and run him out of town for the disgrace that he has brought on his family's name. That would not have been uncommon. What does the father in the story do? Look at verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father runs towards the son. Why? Because he wants to get ahead of the crowds. He wants to get to this kid before the mob does. And in order to run in this culture, men wore these long robe tunic things. So to run would literally mean you had to hoist up your robe, bare your bleached white thighs like mine, and run. And you looked like an idiot doing it. This is why uh, high-powered people in this day and age didn't run. And if you think about it, in our day and age, high-powered CEO types don't run. President Obama's not running anywhere. Mark Zuckerberg, I don't think, is running anywhere. Like Steve Jobs, when he was alive, didn't run anywhere. The interns were the ones that ran around and got stuff done. No offense, interns in the room. But here's this guy... And he hikes up his robe and he runs. Why does he do this? To take the spotlight of shame off of his son and to put it on him. By running towards his son, the crowd shifts their attention from this disgrace of a kid to this idiot of a father now that would do this. And his father embraces his son, which means any tomato or cabbage or empty beer bottle that would have been thrown at this kid is now landing on the father's back as he wraps his arms in this kid. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to be my son's substitute. Mock me, shame me, embarrass me, throw things at me, not my son. But of course, the ultimate reason why he's running is because he wants his kid back in his arms. And it says he holds him, and it says he kissed him. It looks like he only did it once, but the actual Greek there means and implies he's doing it over and over and over and over. And this kid launches into this, in verse 21, he kind of launches into this apology speech that he's prepared. Oh, I've sinned against you. I've sinned. He, he doesn't even get to finish. If you notice, he didn't even get to say the part about the end about hire me as one of your servants. The father just interrupts him. I don't care about your apology speech. I don't care about your attempts to try harder and do better. I don't care. That's not what's provoking my love for you. I love you because I love you. I love you because you're mine. 
That's what he does. And then he interrupts him and he says, bring this kid a ring and some sandals and a robe, which was his way of reinstating this kid as his son again. Of basically looking at the son and saying, I'm going to relate to you and treat you as if you've always been here and never left and always loved me. That's how I'm going to treat you. And then he throws this elaborate, extravagant party that would have been so over the top, people in this culture would have only done something of this magnitude like once a year. That's the welcome that this kid receives. It's quite a story. Too bad it's made up. Or is it? Jesus is telling the story to basically show you this is my story. Just like the father, Jesus is the one that leaves the comfort and the home of his estate to run towards his rebellious children. And the mob taunts him and mocks him and throws things at him and spits in his face and they put him up on a wooden cross. And he receives the shame and the punishment that you and I deserve. And he forgives us and welcomes us and embraces us and kisses us and puts a robe on us so as to say, I'm going to treat you, though you are a rebel, like you have always loved me. This is not like I forgive you and then I'm just going to fold my arms and be always disappointed with you. This is a, I'm going to always relate to you as if you've always loved me perfectly. And then he throws a party for you that never stops that you don't deserve. What he is basically saying is he's blowing our categories to say God's heart is for people that are lost. God's God's heart is for people that don't have homes. And he wants to provide you a home. His goal for you is a party. That's what he wants. Not a shame fest. Not a lecture. Not a get it together. More rules. Try harder. You've missed it if that's what you think. So how do we get home then? You encounter the heart of God. That's it. You just come back home. Covered in your own filth, no resumes, no resolutions, no more, uh, just leave all of that at the door. Show up with nothing but the filth of your own sin and your own shame and be embraced and welcomed by the Father. That's how we get home. Why do you need this tonight? Let me say this and I'll start landing the plane here. Some of you are high-functioning, high-achieving, elite people. And even though your peers and your family and your professors have just heaped praise on you, deep down you don't feel that special. Deep down you feel worthless. You got here, maybe there's a ton of other people. There's people that are a lot smarter than you, a lot more attractive than you, a lot more athletic than you. And here you feel like a fraud. And Jesus looks at you in the story and says, you are precious to me. You are precious and I'm willing to take everything that you feel on myself and throw you a party. You need to hear that tonight. Some of you got to UT and this has felt like anything but home. Maybe you went through recruitment and you got spit out the other side feeling deep wounds and deep feelings of rejection. And you've got here and you haven't found your group yet, you haven't found your friends yet, you haven't found your home yet, and just this first week or so of college is screaming at you, you don't have a home and you feel worthless. And you need to hear Jesus look at you and say, you are precious to me. 
Let me take that rejection and shame that you feel and put it on myself. And I want to throw you a party out of love for you. You need to hear that. Some of you may feel like, good grief, man, I have done stuff. My sin is just too big. The the choices that I've made, there's too many mistakes, too much baggage. This story seems like it's cool, but there's no way that it can be true for me. And you need to hear God contradict you this night. To look at you and say, you are precious to him. And he takes your shame and he takes your regrets and he takes your baggage and he puts it on himself at the cross and gets rid of it and throws you a party You have got to hear that. I'll end with this. Um, Some of you know we have an amazing little five-year-old daughter named Zoe Kate. And uh, last year when we were at Redeemer, we go to the church uh, Redeemer down the street that way. And um, we kind of have this rule with her when church is over, there's this kind of big sanctuary and we have this rule that she she can run around and play with her friends while church is over and everybody's kind of hanging out and talking, but she has to stay in the room because it's too chaotic. We can't keep up with her. And so one day, you know, we're talking with our friends, church is over. She's running around and playing with her, her buddies and crowd's kind of thinning out. It's time for us to get home and get some lunch and we, we don't see her. We can't find her. And it's not abnormal. I mean, she's usually hiding under a pew somewhere or whatever. So I kind of, you know, search the aisles and try to find her, and I don't see her. She's not in the room. And so I kind of grab a friend and say, hey, have you seen Zoe Cade? And no. And so I kind of send him to go look for her somewhere. I go into the narthex. She's not there. And, like, the whole time I'm looking, like, my panic level is slowly increasing. And I'm grabbing more and more people saying, hey, have you seen Zoe Kate? Can you help me find her? I don't know where she is. I go up to the balcony. She's not there. My friends go back into the nursery classes. She's not there. And now horrible scenarios are running through my mind thinking, did someone take her? Did she go outside and she's, she got hit by a car in the parking lot? Like, so I'm going to the parking lot, I don't see her. Going to the other parking lot, I don't see her. Like, there's a search committee that's now formed. Like, a search party is formed trying to find her. And so I think to go downstairs. And so I go downstairs, and I remember kind of rounding the corner, and I see her, lay eyes on her. She, had, she was with her friend. They had gotten into the kitchen where they were drinking all the leftover communion wine from that morning. (laughs) She had a purple mustache. I'm not lying. I walk up to her, and the words that came out of her mouth were were this. This juice makes me happy. (laughs) Honest quote. she said that so so here's this child of mine right here's this child of mine she's she's disobeyed me she has gone against my uh my wishes she's gone against my rules she has brought about horrible trauma in my life and panic in my life i've involved other people uh she has literally gotten drunk as a four-year-old and i know that that was true because she passed out on the ride home from church Which is very true. But I want you to know what I did when I saw her. When I saw her sitting there with her purple mustache all, you know, tipsy in there in the kitchen. I ran to her and I embraced her. And I kissed her and I never wanted to let her go. Because she is one of the most precious things to me. 
I've lost things before. I've lost pens before, and I haven't formed, I haven't formed search parties to go find them. But here was this child that was lost and is now found. And when I found her, I embraced her and I never wanted to let her go because she's my beloved. She's mine. She's my daughter. So I want to end with one question for you tonight. One question for you to consider before we finish. Will you believe God when he looks at you and says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. You were lost and I found you. I've taken all that junk that you deal with, all of your instincts to find your home apart from me, and I threw it on the cross, and I obliterated it with Jesus. And I love you. Will you believe God say that to you tonight? You matter. You are precious. That's the welcome that he gives you, and that's the invitation for you to consider tonight. So let me pray. Father, we're lost, and as we sing sometimes in that song, our hearts are prone to wander. We don't really believe that home is found when we're with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would scoop us up again with your ar- the arms of your grace, the arms of your forgiveness, and would you just melt our hearts from the inside out tonight to know that, that there is a love out there somewhere in the universe that is so aggressive towards us that we really don't even know what to do with it. It's it's hard to believe that it's even true. This feels like a fairy tale sometimes. Would you convince us afresh of your love and of your grace? Help us to see you through this little story here, running towards us, pursuing us, embracing us, kissing us, even though we are covered in the filth of our own sin and our own shame. Help us to believe it to be true and help help it to change us from the inside out. And we would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.